One fine summer morning, a hen was picking peas in a farmyard under a pea stack, when a pea fell on her head with such a thump that she thought a cloud had fallen. And she thought she would go to the court and tell the king that the clouds were falling. So she went and she went and she went and she met a cock and the cock said, where are you going today, Henny Penny? And she said, oh, cocky locky, I'm going to tell the king that the sky is falling. We're going back to the good old days. The accelerating rate of man's progress. For this is the age of industrial chemistry. As we have progressed as a people, we have taken liberally of our Earth's resources. Scientists have discovered a trend. Each spring, over Antarctica, a hole in the ozone develops. Do you think these chlorofluorocarbons are causing this depletion? They said, oh, it has to be wrong. It has to be wrong. We are passing on extremely grave problems for our children when the time to solve the problems, if they can be solved at all, is now. In 1974, Mario Molina and Sherwood Rowland announced their discovery that CFCs were damaging the Earth's ozone layer. Fellow scientists test and confirm their results. The public reacts with fear and aerosol spray sales drop. And then the CFC industry steps in. No reason to fear, they exclaim. This is just a theory. Industry scientists say they need three years to test this theory. The waiting game begins. The industry, of course, had a lot to lose. CFCs were a multi-billion dollar industry back then. Around one million people worked in these companies, but what the scientists were warning of was threatening all life on Earth. The industry reaction was twofold. Companies started studying possible substitutes for CFCs, all the while, their public relations machine worked overtime to discredit the ozone theory and the scientists behind it by painting them as alarmists. The idea was to make it seem as if the ozone depletion was just another occurrence of mass hysteria. They did so by using an old European folktale about a chicken who believes that the world is coming to an end. You heard the beginning of the story at the start of our episode. After a pea, an acorn in other versions of the story, falls on her head, poor Henny Penny starts telling everybody around her the sky is falling. The story ends tragically for poor Henny Penny and all her followers. You can listen to the full story separately on our podcast. Soon enough, the phrase went viral in a 1970s kind of way. Major publications were publishing stories based on press releases devised by the CFC industry. The moral of the story was clear. Don't be as delusional as poor Henny Penny. Don't listen to these scientists. The industry spent millions influencing public opinion against the ozone theory, while the sky is falling became a chant of sorts for ozone science deniers. We can identify three main elements of this disinformation campaign. Let's take an example from a 1975 New York Times article entitled Look Up and Live, the Ozone is Still There. The first goal is to present the scientists as fearmongers. The author of the article starts by asking the reader, should we ban fluorocarbons now and get the facts later or get the facts first? And subsequently ends the article with a reminder that 
Henny Penny, who first postulated that the sky was falling when an acorn fell on her head, was subsequently proved wrong. The second element is to instill fear about the prospects for the economy and the financial cost of CFC regulation. The author writes, Fluorocarbons are used in refrigeration, air conditioning, industrial solvents, fire extinguishers, and about half of all aerosol products, then adds with a tinge of irony, undoubtedly, we could all survive without these. The financial argument was a particularly convincing one at the time. The world was going through a recession. People were rightfully afraid of the impact of the ban on their lives. CFCs were used in everything from their refrigerators to their deodorants. An average American family had 40 to 50 spray cans in their household. The CFC industry threw a lot of numbers around, such as the $135 billion cost that would be incurred by banning the chemicals. Yet the number that was ignored was the cost of doing nothing. The damage to our crops, the increase in skin cancer, the impact on weather patterns in the atmosphere. Regular citizens were hit with all this information at once, with warnings about the economy on one side and alarm bells for the impending ecological disaster on the other. How were they to decide whom to trust? And finally, the third element is the uncorroborated science about the increase of the ozone in the atmosphere. But not every journalist at the time was trying to purposefully undermine ozone science. A lot of reporting from the period suffered from a particular media bias we now call false balance. The New York Times explains false balance, sometimes called both-sidism, as the practice of journalists who, while trying to be fair, present each side of a debate as equally credible, even when the evidence is stacked heavily on one side. Naomi Oreskes, Harvard professor of the history of science, wrote a lot about this. Her 2010 book, Merchants of Doubt, co-authored with Eric Conway, draws parallels between climate change and earlier debates over tobacco smoking, acid rain, and the hole in the ozone layer. So one of the reasons that this, this denial is so damaging and also difficult to counter is because it takes the strength of science and tries to turn it into a weakness. And we call this the jujitsu move of climate denial. So one of the strengths of science is that scientists are open-minded, that scientists acknowledge the uncertainties in their data. It's considered required if you write a scientific paper to have a section on the limits of the methods or the uncertainties in the data, or to give error bars to do an error analysis on your data. So to be honest and open about the uncertainties and to acknowledge the areas where new and more work is needed, because that's how science advances. Science has advanced by dogmatically saying this is the fact and that's the end of the story. No, science advances by saying here are things we're pretty sure about and here are things we still need to look at more closely. And that's the strength of science. The deniers and skeptics take this strength of science and they turn it into weakness. The fact that a scientist acknowledges there's some aspect of the problem that's not fully resolved is then transmuted into the claim that we don't know anything, even when, of course, we actually know a lot. They then exploit this by pressuring journalists to cover both sides of the issue. So one of the things the tobacco industry did, and we know this for a fact because we have the documents that have come out of legal discovery, uh, they would pressure journalists, they would pressure editors, they would schedule meetings with the editors of prominent newspapers like the New York Times in the United States um, to present their side of the story. And then they would exploit, so just as they exploited a strength of science to try to turn into weakness, they did the same thing in journalism. So objectivity is obviously a virtue. 
And it's a strength of journalists when they strive to be objective and to tell both sides of the story when there really are two sides. Certainly in a political debate, that's a very reasonable framework to present the diverse views on an issue. But they exploited that and pressured journalists to present their side of the story, even when their side was actually a lie, when their side was a deception. So in the case of tobacco by the 1960s, we had overwhelming proof that tobacco, smoking tobacco use caused not just lung cancer, but a whole host of diseases, including heart disease, high blood pressure, blindness, pancreatic cancer, I mean, a very long list of terrible, deadly diseases caused by using tobacco products. That was the truth of the matter. The industry was telling a lie. They were saying, well, we didn't really know. We weren't really sure. Maybe smoking was even good for you. And that was a claim that was made back in the 40s and 50s and even sometimes in the 60s. Um, You know, these lung cancers might really have been caused by asbestos or radon, right? They had a whole set of distracting, deflecting and deceiving arguments. And they pressured journalists to present their arguments as if they were equal in weight, equal in validity to the scientific positions. And the reality is that practically all the journalists fell for it, including some of the most you know, respected newspapers in America, like the New York Times. And for you know, well into the late 1970s, the New York Times was still presenting the views of tobacco industry executives as, quote, the other side, as if they were of equal validity to the scientific conclusions. Um, now, so then the exact same thing happened in climate change. And for decades, even after the scientific evidence that man-made climate change was happening was overwhelming, even after the IPCC had published multiple reports on this issue, most journalist outlets were still presenting the disinformation, the denialist side as a counter uh, because they felt that that was, you know, that was balance, that was objectivity. But really, it's what we've called false equivalence. They're treating a lie or a misleading statement as if it's equivalent to proven scientific facts. And that, of course, was extremely damaging. Those were just some of the ways the industry tried to shape the public debate on ozone depletion. At the same time, industry scientists were trying to influence the scientific discussion regarding ozone loss, often without having direct experience with ozone research. Los Angeles Times science journalist Sharon Rowan wrote how, at the height of the debate, the U.S. chemical industry invited a prominent British meteorologist, Richard Scorer, to do a speaking tour to disprove the theory. In the July 8, 1975 edition of the New York Times, Scorer was quoted as describing the theory as utter nonsense and saying that natural forces play a greater role in ozone loss than man-made chemicals. In his speaking engagements, he referred to ozone scientists as doomsayers. A day after the New York Times article was published, Scorer was a guest on Firing Line, a long-running American public affairs talk show, where he clashed with the former governor of Delaware and influential environmentalist Russell Peterson. The discussion was moderated by Firing Line's longtime host and political commentator, William Buckley Jr. But the key issue here, as I see it, is whether or not the government is going to... uh, exercise its assignment of deciding whether over the long term the health and security of our whole uh, ecosystem is a corporate responsibility. Well, that's right, whether or not uh, that is uh, threatened here. And uh, too often we make decisions in our system 
which are more oriented toward near-term benefits, mm -hmm. profits, for example, than toward the long-term uh, consequences. And one of the well, big profits can have long-term benefits. Oh, I'm not talking sure negatively about profits. I'm sure the emissions are living off the profits yeah. that were made 100 years ago. I think that our profit system is a very good one. Has many. That's uh, right. You merits. were a Republican governor. Well, I also was deeply involved in industry for 26 years, so I know how the system yeah, works. Mr. Scorer, of course, is a member of the Labour Party, but mm -hmm. that's only the beginning of his disagreements mm -hmm. with you. Is that correct? Do you feel, Mr. Scorer, that uh, enough evidence has accumulated to uh, gain, say, even at this point, the putative findings of this commission? We've just had July the 4th. And I am utterly appalled at what Mr. Peterson says. He's saying that the government is going to tell everybody what to do about this situation. And I come from Socialist Britain, where I understand it's looked at from this side as, as though we're trying to control everybody. And I feel very free over there, and I come over here and find the governor trying <coughs> to uh, get some boffins to advise some uh, bureaucrats and perhaps some politicians, what they're going to tell everybody what to do. Well, it's not only July the 4th, it's also the 200th anniversary of the Wealth of Nations, and Adam Smith would have considered it perfectly uh, legitimate to tell people what to do insofar as it was necessary to conserve natural resources. But one thing or about national Adam monuments, as he Well, I, I'm not a disciple of Adam Smith by any means, but <coughs> what I'm getting at really is that uh, he's participating in this process of taking away from the individual any responsibility for his own actions and life. And this, I thought, was what uh, people in this country were criticizing about socialism. Well, but, but if you're making a social point, this becomes a little bit complicated, because if, if in fact, I have it in my power to pollute the air that, other, that I breathe exclusively, you might say this is a nice solipsistic uh, relationship between me and the air, but unfortunately I can't pollute my air without polluting yours, can I? And yes, you do not have the right to cry fire in a crowded building. Yeah, that's yes, right. But, but our prime concern should be to get people to manage their own lives, not to tell them how to manage them. I rejoice to hear that from a socialist. I think mm. that uh, you got this analyzed completely wrong, uh, Professor I was Scott. nearly going on what you said. The, uh, because what we need to do is to get the individual to uh, also exercise some responsibility, not to uh, just rush ahead with his own objectives to take care of his near-term goals without being concerned about the problems that are created for the other millions of people around the globe. And talking about Adam Smith, he talked, as you well remember, about the invisible hand, that if uh, government freed up man to pursue his economic ventures as he saw fit, that there was an invisible hand that would direct him in a way to serve the public interest. But one thing that Adam Smith didn't appreciate, he wrote his work 200 years ago, is there also an invisible foot. And that if you don't uh, uh, pay attention to what you're doing, that foot can come around and kick you too. And that's what we're talking about here today when we are concerned about what will be the negative impacts of exploiting the positive virtues of things like the fluorocarbons. Scorer's talking points about individual responsibility were quite at odds with his background in studying air pollution, another man-made environmental crisis. It was also odd that despite becoming a prominent name in the ozone debate, Scorer never conducted any studies on ozone depletion, nor did he publish anything on the topic. 
Peterson, at the time the chairman of the President's Council on Environmental Quality, openly advocated CFC regulation and would be remembered for his famous words, we cannot afford to give chemicals the same constitutional rights that people enjoy under law. Chemicals are not innocent until proven guilty. In the years that followed, new reports with new predictions about the state of the ozone layer were published, but there were still no definitive measures to prove or disprove Molina and Rowland's theory. When the three years the industry requested to conduct additional research went by, the group representing CFC manufacturers requested an extension. The clock was ticking, but not much had been done. The United States was the first to react with some regulation. In 1978, the country banned CFCs from all aerosols. Canada and Scandinavian countries followed, but the regulation had no impact on other uses of CFCs. In 1981, seven years after Molina and Roland's paper, Denmark, Germany, the Netherlands, Canada, Norway, Sweden, and the European Commission renewed their call for immediate international action. But amidst all the reports and the infighting, apathy seemed to have set in. As late as 1986, industry representatives were recorded saying that according to their projections, the level of CFC's emissions did not present a threat to the ozone layer for the following 100 years. At the time, a spokesman for a company that produced CFCs was recorded as saying that the only way for the industry to change its ways was regulation. The New Yorker journalist, Paul Brodeur, interviewed Sherwood Rowland many times during those years. Rowland, who actively participated in the ozone debate since the beginning, was disappointed by the lack of action on the global scale. He was also worried about the fact that most of the funding in atmospheric research was coming from the industry. During one of their interviews in 1984, Rowland famously said, nothing will be done about the problem until there is further evidence that a significant loss of ozone has occurred. Unfortunately, this means that if there is a disaster in the making in the stratosphere, we are probably not going to avoid it. Just a year later, the evidence came in that disaster had struck. Farmer, Gardner and Shanklin announced they had discovered the ozone hole in the Antarctic. The sky was falling. Next time on Ozone, how the world came together to solve the ozone crisis. Subscribe to Climate Solutions so you don't miss the next chapters of Ozone, the story of how we dealt with the biggest environmental disaster humanity encountered until climate change. We're on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and wherever you get your podcasts. This was Climate Solutions from the European Investment Bank. Paul Brodeur's articles mentioned in this episode were both published in The New Yorker. The first story, entitled Inert, was published in 1975, while the second story, In the Face of Doubt, was featured in the June 1986 issue of the magazine. Firing Line Copyright is held by Stanford University. We've received written permission of the Hoover Institution Library and Archives on behalf of Stanford University to use the clip featured in the episode.